Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Very glad you're with us for the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. And Jim, let's start with the good. And one of the things that we've talked about from time to time as we get ready for the midterm elections is, hey, where's that generic congressional ballot at? Uh, There was a point where I think Republicans were up high single digits, which is really, really good. Uh, Then Democrats edged in front a little bit. Now I think Republicans are uh, back in front by a little bit, but it's always a national generic ballot poll. Well, as we have talked about in many uh, episodes, most House seats aren't competitive. So how do they look in the competitive seats? ABC News did a poll of that. Good for them. Among people living in congressional districts that are rated as at least somewhat competitive by ABC's 538, which means neither solid Republican nor solid Democratic, registered voters favor Republican candidates by a wide 55 to 34 percent, nearly as big as the Republican lead in solid districts at 24 percent. Democrats lead by 35 points in solid Democratic districts, pointing to a potential overvote where they're most prevalent. So... To put it in even more layman's terms, Jim, Democrats do really, really well in the seats that they're going to win by a lot. But they're only one seat, no matter what the margin is. And it looks like when you look at the at the seats where it could go either way, uh, Republicans have a huge advantage. And that's really good news. Greg, there are two things that jump out at me as I look at this. First of all, I think you're absolutely right. The generic ballot coast to coast, every single congressional district is probably not the most useful measuring stick because of gerrymandering, because most incumbents get reelected, we don't necessarily know. I mean, obviously, we know from historical period, you know, past performances, uh, Democrats are usually anywhere from three to maybe six or seven ahead. And, you know, they want to be, I'm going to say four plus four or plus five on the generic ballot if they're going to keep the House. Partially through gerrymandering and just the way the districts shake out. Uh, they need to be ahead by a bunch by if that's going to you know shake out for control of the house. But as this poll does a useful thing of like sorting out, don't tell us the R plus twenty districts. Don't tell us the R plus twenty three. Give us just the ones we really care about. And as you noted, that you know makes a fairly significant uh, you know difference there. Now the other thing I'm, I'm noticing as I look at real clear politics. Now, right now, in all of their average, they have the Democrats, you know, almost neck and neck, Democrats ahead by three-tenths of a percentage point. But something kind of funny happens that once you look at it, you look at the most recent one from ABC Washington Post, amongst likely voters, Republicans up five. Wow. All right. Yeah, that's pretty big. That would be a, you know, 2010, 2014 style, style route. CBS News has Republicans up by one, still pretty good by that. And that is of nearly 2,000 likely voters. Emerson, likely voters, has a tie. Rasmussen, 2,500 likely voters, has Republicans up by two. But the average, like, okay, well, if Republicans are ahead, why do they have Democrats ahead? Well, they have two that have Democrats ahead by five percentage points, one by YouGov and one by Politico, but both of those are of registered voters. Now, the uh, YouGov poll ended on the 20th of uh, September. Uh, Politico's one ended on the 18th of September. Here we are at the 26th. Guys, do you plan on putting a likely voter screen on your samples anytime soon? We're getting a little late in the cycle for this sort of thing. And obviously, look, not every registered voter is going to turn out to vote. I think turnout will be fairly high this year. Um, I think the, you know, there's probably a whole bunch of people who may not be showing up in these polls who just don't want to answer phone, answer the phones. And a lot of Republicans believe that that means that those folks are more Republican leaning. 
But I think you add it all up and that actually looks pretty good. Um, and I think it's kind of the these inclusion of these generic ballot polls of registered voters that are counting a bunch of folks who probably aren't going to vote either absentee or early on election day might be giving Democrats a better, a rosier picture than it really is. We'll have to wait and see in November how things actually shake out. But if Republicans do significantly better in the House than expected, look at numbers like this and realize one, the generic ballot numbers were counting a whole bunch of districts that weren't competitive at all. And two, way too many of these polls, way too late in the cycle, were still asking questions of registered voters instead of likely voters. Yeah, absolutely right. It t- looks like it's going to be a pretty good turnout again, though, um, about the same as 2018, although I have a sneaking suspicion that uh, a lot of those people are going to be voting differently than they did in 2018. And uh, 66% say voting in this election is important to them, which is the same as in 2018. So we will find out. But uh, if this is where the competitive districts are standing right now, just a few weeks before Election Day, uh, I like our chances. All right, on to our bad martini now, Jim. And this is the subject of your morning jolt here on Monday today. And it's the the economy is starting to buckle is your headline today. And you've got a lot of different indicators here. First of all, you have some conversations with readers who are telling you that uh, companies are getting skinny, meaning they're cutting uh, unnecessary costs and bracing for an economic downturn. Uh, We talked last week about how the National Energy Assistance Directors Association is looking at 17.2% increases in uh, home heating compared uh, to last year. Uh, Then you talk also about uh, supplies being low of heating oil and natural gas and that sort of thing. Uh, And then you say it gets even worse because we've got a housing problem. We've got a shortage. Prices are going up. Um, real estate is in such a pinch right now that in big cities, they're actually reducing housing capacity because they're making more luxury stuff than stuff that uh, lower income folks can afford. So uh, when you put all this together, how ugly is this? It's pretty darn ugly. And uh, right before we started taping today's podcast, there was an NR conference call and my colleague, Dominic Pino, who follows economics and trade issues and business news and all that kind of stuff said, yep, today's jolt was absolutely, totally right. And usually that feels good. I kind of had mixed feelings because it was so economically pessimistic. And I said to Dominic, I was kind of hoping you'd say I'd be totally wrong about this. And he's like, nope, nope, the the economic outlook really is terrible. Yeah, good for me, not so good for the entire country. Some of the stuff we've talked about in past uh, editions of the podcast, energy prices, I, I can't emphasize enough how much, one, utility prices, like how much you pay for your electricity. And then secondly, home heating. And, you know, whether it's natural gas, whether it's oil, however you heat your home, chances are you're going to pay a lot more uh, this winter than you're used to. Significantly more than last winter, which, oh, by the way, was significantly higher than the winter before that. So energy prices are going to have this giant impact on people's uh, finances. And then the second thing, you talk about the the use, land use and things. Look, if you ha- own a home, then you're probably... You know, I don't want to say sitting pretty, but you probably feel pretty comfortably about it. If you're shopping for a home, it's a really terrible time. Interest rates are going up. I know a, a family that's trying to sell their house. I think they just sold it, but it was a absolute, you know, long ordeal because, you know, potential buyers thought they could afford it. And then with the increasing interest rates and things like that, you know, they go through the process and realize they can't actually afford it. So a whole bunch of potential sellers can't really afford what they thought they could afford. The second thing is you look at these zoning laws and also just land use restrictions. Um, You know, it's not just enough to say, oh, here's a patch of land. I want to develop a housing development out there. You need roads. You need the infrastructure for water, sewer, 
uh, natural gas, if you're going to use that, electricity, like all that kind of stuff. And that uh, apparently in these boom countries, this is all in, the, in today's Wall Street Journal, uh, boom cities like Atlanta and Tampa, all throughout the Sun Belt, where you've got people are moving there, they're tired of dealing with northern winters, they're kind of boom towns. Uh, Austin, places like that, where housing prices are skyrocketing, rents are skyrocketing. Well, one of the reasons they're skyrocketing is that lots of people want to move there and the housing supply is not increasing dramatically. Why is the housing supply not increasing dramatically? Some of it is, you know, usual supply chain issues, but a lot of that's it's like bad and dumb zoning laws and other restrictions that make it harder to expand those exurbs out further. Now we can argue about suburban sprawl, but I think we can point out that, you know, what used to be a housing you know, crisis in New York and LA, probably here in the Washington area, uh, big cities has now become a much more widespread issue across the country. And as rents increase and as mortgage payments increase and housing prices increase, people have less discretionary income to spend on all the other stuff. So that's why people feel really squeezed. So bad housing policies, bad energy policies. And on top of it, as we talked about all the different spending bills Congress is throwing around, you're putting money in people's pockets, but they don't have supply of goods. Housing is hard to find and energy is more expensive. Lo and behold, you end up in an economy like this one. But hey, Greg, I hear Joe Biden wants to run on his economic record between now and the midterms. <laughs> Jim, I just saw a clip from uh, yesterday's Meet the Press with panelist Jen Psaki, who's now an NBC contributor and is going to get her own MSNBC show. She said that if it's a referendum on the president in the midterms, the Democrats lose. And she was also talking about how crime is uh, dragging them down. Uh, if we see a continuing drop, not only in the markets, but uh, as your jolt suggested, we're going to potentially see an ugly jobs report, which would be right. Uh, no, we're going to get two more before Election Day, I think. Uh, and, and so if that starts to cool off, which is the only thing he has to talk about right now, that's going to spell trouble for the Democrats, which in the short term will be good for Republicans. But like you said at the beginning, when Dominic was very complimentary about your column, it's not a good thing uh, in the short term for the American people with the, where the economy is. Jen Psaki really said that if the midterms are a referendum on Joe Biden, Democrats lose. Yeah. If it is a referendum on the president, they will lose. And they know that. They also know that crime is a huge vulnerability for Democrats. I would say one of the biggest vulnerabilities. You know, let's give a little bit of credit to Jen Psaki for going out there and saying something that her boss would not like to hear that Democrats do not want to hear. And I kind of suspect meet the press viewers may not want to hear. A little, little gold star for you, Jen Psaki, something I did not necessarily expect to say to say when she uh, joined NBC News. Um, second, I think it is pretty revealing there. Um, one of the things that spurred all this is somebody I know who works in supply chains was just saying, you know, everybody, I, every company, every one of my clients is trying to get skinny, meaning trying to eliminate costs wherever possible. And then it, this may be, you know, recency bias, bias, where like you start looking for something and then you start seeing it. But a whole bunch of companies have announced layoffs. And I think one of the things that's intriguing is a lot of it is like white collar executive positions, uh, finance and accounting and things like that. The Gap, Boeing, uh, companies like that. I don't know if today this month's jobs report is going to be terrible or it's going to be a little bit lower than expected or not so great or something. But it does seem like it's starting to add up. And I kind of have this that you can see the business community saying, we don't know what the next couple of months to hold. We know energy prices are going to be higher. We just don't know what to, do, what to expect. We're not making any big expansions. We're not hiring. We're not doing anything like that. In fact, some places like FedEx are closing like 90 stores and stuff like that. So all of this talk about are we in a recession, we could get a very intense data points fueling that argument between now and, and the midterms. Uh, again, probably good for Republicans in the short term, but you'd rather not see the whole country have to suffer uh, as a consequence of bad policies. No, that's absolutely right. And so... 
We will see what happens uh, in the coming reports, but uh, the economy's been very, very ugly lately. And of course, with uh, the Fed chairman saying a lot of people are going to have to lose their jobs before inflation goes down, uh, not inspiring a lot of confidence. That's, that's for sure. All right, on to our final martini, our crazy martini now, Jim. And a lot of people paying attention to the parliamentary elections in Italy over the weekend, which uh, gave us a decisive winner. Her name is Georgia Maloney. And depend, I'm not an expert on Italian politics. I don't know if you consider yourself one or not, but certainly a lot of people on Twitter do it in the mainstream media. They've decided she's a fascist. They've decided she's an ultranationalist. They've decided she's a white supremacist. Uh, uh, but mainly they're calling her a fascist, which makes it hard, Jim, to understand whether or not she actually is a fascist because, you know, Joe Biden calls Trump and Trump supporters fascists. The left calls anybody who disagrees with their agenda fascists. So the word has largely lost meaning. From what I've seen from videos posted uh, about her, she's pro-Israel, she's pro-NATO, she's pro-Ukraine and the fight against uh, Russia. Uh, this article I see on NBC News is mad at her for uh, not wanting more unauthorized migration from Africa. And she's upset about the chronically low birth rate in Italy. So now, again... I, we don't know enough about I don't know enough about her to decide whether she's uh, a radical or not. But when the media hates somebody so much, you immediately start to wonder, you know, maybe there's maybe there's something good about her. Uh, but at the other hand, um, language has just gotten beaten down to the point where you actually have to wait and see, I guess, uh, because you just can't trust anything the media tells you anymore. Indeed, uh, Greg, you know, if there's any country on this earth where fascists should have a really specific and clear meaning, you'd like to think it would be Italy land of the original fascists. And um, again, I, you, you, you know, not following Italian politics enormously closely. And also recognizing that these are leaders of coalitions. And, you know, when you are the right of center coalition in Europe, a European country, there's a chance you're going to have some fringe. There's a chance you're going to have some members of that coalition who are not good guys, who are in fact bad guys, and who might deserve some of those really vociferous monikers and labels and things like that. But when they list off the things that allegedly make Georgia Maloney fascist, increasing the birth rate, really? That's that's something that makes you fascist? That you know, My colleagues were, were discussing this on this conference call I mentioned, and one of the uh, we have a couple, you know, members of the staff who really follow European politics, and Richard Brookheiser had this lovely, casual way of saying, "Well, she's very anti-Putin, which is a pleasant surprise." Uh, which, yes, you know, generally there have been some parties on the right in Europe that have been uncomfortably warm and fuzzy or footsy towards Putin, but that's not the case. Now, obviously, some of this reflects the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the degree to which you know Putin has been beyond the pale, uh, you know, all over the spectrum of European politics. But I think you're right. I think what we're seeing here is. Um, a reflexive use of terms that is actually uh, obscures more than it clarifies. And if I guess the other thing is that if you are really anti-fascist, as opposed to being anti-anyone to the right of me, then you probably would want to drive a wedge between genuine actual fascists and people who are merely right of center in their politics. It would be really important for you to say, I oppose these fascists, but I do not oppose all conservatives and to not demonize all conservatives that way. I think the more you say, uh, you know, conservatives are fascists and, you, you know, people, we kind of saw this with, you know, Donald Trump is a an extremist. Right? You know, I, by the way, listeners to this podcast know, I think there are certain areas you can make that argument with a great deal of evidence. But if you casually put in and he's pro-life, well, wait a second, pro-life and extremist are not the are not synonyms. 
he supports big corporations. Actually, he was kind of running against big corporations and you know all that stuff in the 2016 election. You, you, the, the idea that some of these terms just fascist turns into a synonym for, I don't like this person. And when it does that, the warning that someone is fascist becomes meaningless because it turns into the boy who cried wolf. Everyone, when everyone becomes a fascist, no one's a fascist. And that's probably exactly the political environment that actual fascists would like to see, Greg. Yes, yes. It gives them cover because when you're calling everyone a fascist, then people are just going to stop believing you uh, about anybody. So uh, again, and you got the president of the United States saying this about his political opponents. But remember, conservatives are the ones who are dangerous, Jim. Anyway, uh, quite a start to the week. We'll see what happens in Italy. The proof will be in the pudding there. Uh, and uh, we will see what uh, the rest of the week hands us as well. Jim, have a good one. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the Three Martini Launch podcast if you don't already and tell a friend about us as well. Thank you very much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. They're a big help to us. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Launch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. And don't forget about Jim's brand new novel, Gathering Five Storms, and the accompanying short story, Saving the Devil. Have a great Monday and join us again on Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Former CIA station chief Daniel Hoffman joins me to discuss why the Biden administration is ducking questions about China buying land near our military bases. I'm Sarah Carter. On the latest Sarah Carter show, we'll also discuss what's going to happen in Russia, Biden's weak approach to Iran, and how Hoffman's son is courageously raising money for cancer research after his mom, Hoffman's wife, passed away last year. Follow the Sarah Carter show wherever you get your podcasts.